The information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is not to be taken as financial or personal advice. It does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether this information is suitable for you and your personal circumstances before acting on it. Hi, and welcome to The Home Run, your guide to buying your first home in Australia. On the show, I'll walk you through the home buying process from every angle. We cover the steps to take, the pitfalls to avoid, and the answers to all your questions you've been dying to ask. No matter what stage you're at, you'll learn everything you need to know about buying your first home. I'm your host, Michael Nasser, and I'm a mortgage broker at Lens Street, and I really love helping people buy their first home. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Belinda Botsolis. Belinda has a diverse background, which involves experience in property valuation, property tax, and as a property strategist, a role which she currently undertakes at Metropole, a company providing strategic property and wealth advice. Today with Belinda, we discuss how to identify a quality property. As a first home buyer, it's important to note that all properties are not made equally. So you need to be mindful of the asset you're going to choose as your first home. This can sometimes be confused with government subsidies that may prove beneficial, but may also push you into an asset that may not be best for you. In our chat, we talk about what a property valuer is, what off the plan properties are, and the potential pitfalls that they may encompass. But most importantly, we go through Belinda's process of determining the key ingredients for a quality property. Lots of great insights to be shared today, so let's get into it. Joining us on the podcast, I'm very excited to have you on to talk about how to identify quality property. But before we get going, let's get to know you. So if we can get a bit of a background as to who you are and where you got to what you're doing today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's going to be a fun podcast. I have been a property valuer for the past 16 years. I worked predominantly in Sydney. I'm a Sydney valuer. I've worked it out and it sounds really impressive, but I don't know if it's that impressive because it's in Sydney and and everything here's so expensive, Mm. but worked out that it's a little over $12 billion of property I valued. I put my name on that. So it's a bit of a flex I have. Yeah. It'd be a lot less if I was in another state, but anyway, it is what it is. And I've physically walked through about 15,000 properties. So Mm. I've got a lot of on the ground experience. I've walked into some amazing homes. You can imagine Lux listing Sydney style. And I've also walked into homes about 15 or 16 square meters, tiny little units, studio apartments. So I have seen a lot. I'm also a registered tax agent. So I specialize in tax depreciation schedules. That's usually for investors. And I now work as a property strategist. So just taking on all my years of experience in the valuation sector and moved it on and helping clients invest in in property. Yeah, very broad and, and a lot of experience, I guess, with property and different facets, but obviously all tying together as well in terms of really understanding this particular asset class of property. So definitely a lot of insights that we can get through. You've mentioned that you're a valuer and to a lot of the listeners, they may not have heard of what a valuer is or what they do or the role that they play in a purchase transaction. So let's sort of start on that. What is a valuer? I guess it's a legal profession. I'll start by saying that. And I'll start also by saying it's different to getting an appraisal letter from an agent. So an agent will tell you what your property can sell, but that's not a legal document. And that document can't be held up in a court of law for the Office of State Revenue or a legal document, so to speak. So you may need a legal valuation done on your home for the bank to obtain finance, You may need one if you're getting a divorce and the courts need an official valuation done, Office of State Revenue for stamp duty capital gains tax. 
So a valuer establishes your market value via a legal document, which is the valuation report. So we establish your market value of your home. And, and I, you mentioned before that a lot of people may not know what a valuer is. A lot of people know what a valuer is. And the first question I get asked is, why do you undervalue property? <laughs> so I turn and why did you undervalue my property 25%? And I got all my homes valued and the valuer came through. They were there for five minutes and they walked out and they undervalued my house. That's mm. number one question mm. I get. I would say that our duty of care when we're doing a mortgage valuation is to the bank. And that's who we need to do the valuation for. So we need to be pretty confident when we put our name on this document, because it's a legal document, that the bank is going to be able to recoup that money as at the date of that valuation due to the evidence of the comparable sales. And we've got to make sure that they can. Now we know, we understand it can go for more. We get that. If it went to auction, two people fought it out, it might get more. But we have no evidence to support that for the bank if they're going to be lending money to you to buy that. So we're almost like a safety net, if you will, to the banks. So then they can lend money comfortably. That's why mortgage broker, you know, you get some clients that have to pay lenders mortgage insurance and some that don't. We are not privy to a client's information. So we don't know whether you're going to pay lenders mortgage insurance or not, or if you're refinancing or staying with the same bank, but that lenders mortgage insurance is security for the bank. So if the valuer gets the valuation wrong, they can actually try and sue the valuer and say, hey, you were wrong. We lent money. Now we're not getting that money back. We're going to sue you. It's a very professional, in-depth career. It's got a lot of risks. It's great if there's anyone out there listening and they want to be a valuer, Mm. there's a big shortage. So Mm. it's a great time to get in. You'll get a job tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of booming in that space. Hearing from what you've mentioned, the valuer looks at creating or establishing the value of a property based on comparable sales, as opposed to maybe what a market value of a property would be, which is obviously if it was to go to market via an agent, that price is different to what it gets valued at based on recent sales. And in terms of a first home buyer, what point in the transaction does a valuer get involved? And is there any direct communication between a first home buyer and a valuer? Not really. We don't have any communication. It's a little bit of a tricky one there, Michael, because we are doing a valuation on essentially your property. You're living there. It's coming into your home. It's quite a personal, intimate thing to come into someone's home. But you are not our client. Our client is the bank. So that's where sometimes people think, why you valued my home? You went into my house, but we are not your client. The client is the bank actually. And you'd know this, the bank own the home until you've paid that last deposit and then they hand back the deed. Their interest is to make sure that they're going to get their money back that you owe them. That's when you sign your mortgage documents. You're signing your life away, basically saying, if we don't pay it back, you can come and take our home. Yes. because we don't officially own it. I guess as a first home buyer, so they actually wouldn't own any property at that stage. So they've made the purchase. The valuer comes in and again, comes in via the direction of the bank and the valuer will then value the property. And for a first home buyer, what they've got to be mindful of is the valuation that the valuer is going to provide the same as my purchase price. And at what stage is that determined? And how can that affect the transaction potentially? We can value a home hasn't transacted in the market. So it could just be for a current homeowner. But in your case, with a first home buyer, there's always that really nervous period between having that valuer through and waiting for the valuation to come back. Please come back at, you know, and they, that nervous in the tummy and they'll call you up probably and send you, has the valuation come back? What did it come back at? Please tell me, you know, came back at contract price. 
I can't speak for other valuers. I can speak from my personal experience prior. I always had the mindset or the mentality in inverted commas, innocent until proven guilty. What I mean by that is I always go out to prove that your property is worth what you paid for it unless I've got substantial evidence glaring at me in the marketplace that you've paid too much. And I think that you would know yourself if you paid too much. You know that gut feeling, you took it a bit too far at auction, case of FOMO, you were bidding every week, you kept missing out, you put your hands up and I'm buying this, I don't care anymore, I've had it. And you know in yourself if you have, and then it's that's when you get that nervous feeling, go, oh God, I think I may have paid too much, I hope the valuation comes back. I would say 99% of the time, I put it through, even if it's upper end of parameters, especially in a moving market, it's a bit tough because we have data lag. And we know that there's other evidence out there that we can support, but they just haven't been registered yet with the land titles office because they're still in that cooling off period or it's still under contract. And the bank want us to use sales evidence that have actually exchanged. Yeah. Okay. Meaning that whoever purchased it is now the official purchaser. It's not in that under contract period. What that really means is we're valuing it what we think it's worth. Yeah. And if it's a little up, it's a little up, but it's got to be substantially yeah. over for us to knock it back. And from what I'm hearing, you've got to have the evidence there to back up the price that you're giving it because there is a legal element to the price that you're giving attributing to that property. And you've mentioned some LMI implications and some other implications for the lender potentially. And so you've got to be mindful of that. I guess the valuer has to do a lot and it's quite a complicated thing. And for a first home buyer, there is nothing much that they can do to prepare themselves for it. As from what I see as a broker, the, the most nervous part of a transaction is obviously when you've purchased the price of the property, sorry, so you've exchanged and the loan is subject to valuation. Like that's the condition that's always on there. And it's like, well, what's going to happen here when the valuation comes through? So it's always the one thing that you can't fully predict, but you can assume, I guess, based on depending on how you've proceeded with that purchase price. And if you have gotten emotional or if you haven't gotten emotional, how that's all worked. But I guess there's nothing much that can be done. It's just a matter of the process occurring and taking place. And then hopefully it stacks up and I guess we can proceed forward. The other thing that I want to jump and talk about was as a valuer and now as a property strategist, you'd be aware of various types of properties that are available to purchase. First home mm -hmm. buyers, they can be swayed by government grants. Government grants at present have a very big emphasis on new builds and off the plan. What are your thoughts on these types of properties? I'm talking again as a professional with no emotion on this answer, Michael, full disclaimer, because you touched on just before knocking back contract and then having that sort of mortgage shortfall where if that first homeowner puts an offer in and exchanges on the contract and then they wait for the valuation to come back, if the valuation is actually lower than the contract price, then that first homeowner has to come up with the difference themselves whether they beg, still borrow or whatever, they've got to come up with that money or they have to rescind the contract. And because we aren't hired by the client, I actually don't know what happens when that valuation goes to the bank because the bank is my client. They do what they need to and not the actual borrower. The borrower is not my client. So I don't know what happens to them. It's almost, it goes off into the abyss. What I do know is out of all the contracts I have rejected, I'd say very, very close to about 95% have been brand new and off the plan. And why that is, is because typically it's an inflated sale. It's an emotional sale. You're buying brand new. You've got that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that you're the first homeowner. You've been sold to by a beautiful marketing ad campaign. There's the element of capital growth, depreciation, higher than average rents, because if you're buying as a first homeowner, 
you may not always see yourself living here and potentially it's going to be an investment property. So you think you're chasing the higher rents. What we find is it's always above market value because they've got their own premium that they put on there. And what we also find is they will give you, if it's a two-tier market, and what I mean by two-tier market is if you've got the general market, so say you're buying in an area like, I'm from Sydney, let's just say Parramatta, everybody knows the suburb Parramatta. You have Parramatta as a suburb as a whole, but then you also have Parramatta brand new units. So they will only give you sales of brand new units to help you understand what that property is worth, but they won't show you sales of similar properties, even if they're five or 10 years old outside of that market to show you as a comparison what they could potentially be selling for in a year or two's time when they don't have that glitz and glamour of a brand new property. Enter the valuer. Valuer, and we have very strict guidelines. So where an agent will play on your emotion and say, we'll push the market, we'll dress it up and we'll put this flashy ad campaign and we'll try and push your property up to get a high market value. The valuer sips back, strips out all the BS and goes, you know what? yeah, okay, it's got a contract for that. But I know for a fact that you're paying a premium, it's brand new. And all the other areas, again, going back to that Parramatta, they're selling, yes, okay, it's not as good because it's five years old, but it's definitely not $200,000 less. So which means that, yes, there could be maybe a $50,000 premium, but you're paying two hundred dollars or $300,000 more than the nearest comparable outside that complex. So what I was hearing there is when off the plan, obviously, problematic potentially for valuation. And that can happen because when you are looking at an off-the-plan property, yes, obviously you've got the government grant that might be quite enticing. They use it as mark comparables and especially depending on where those comparables have come from. If they've come from the developer or the builder, they're using similar properties that have sold that are brand new as well, as opposed to a valuer who's going to come in and not just use the new property, but also going to use the comparable existing properties that are within the market. And if there's a disparity there, then it doesn't matter that they're all brand new and you're using that price. It's the total market. And that may lead to a misalignment of purchase price and a, what the valuation come through at. Would I be right to yeah. say that? And when you have these government grants, and let's say they're giving you 25 grand argument sake, because they're a bit different depending on which entry level in different states, but we'll play with 25 grand here. Then the developer sometimes knows that you've got that extra 25 grand to play with. You know you've got that extra 25 grand to play with. And sometimes it's absorbed in the price. So you're not paying $500,000 and really you're paying four seventy five because you've got a $225,000 saving. They'll typically sell it to you for five twenty five dollars and make you feel that you've bought a bargain. Do you understand? They'll increase the price to absorb that extra twenty five grand when really in actual fact it's probably worth close to four fifty. Okay. You've okay. now paid not just a premium for brand new, premium through the developer, premium because of the government grant. And the developers sometimes play on that emotion for you. They'll sell that to you. You know, don't worry, you get the grant, you get stamp duties free. And this is why as a property strategist, the company I work for, Metropole, we don't sell properties off the plan. I'm not going to call them competitors because I don't think they're in my league, mm. but there's a lot of other companies out there and all they do is they spruik brand new and off the plan. Come and invest with us. We'll show you where to invest. And all they do is push brand new and off the plan properties to poor first-time investors or first-time owners, and I think you poor people because you're going to be stuck in the product that's not going to do anything for the next 10 years. You know, Melbourne, you probably heard it in the media, but they had a huge thing with their South Bank developments, okay? okay? Way too much oversupply. And these were about 2009, 2010, massive, massive, beautiful. I mean, every time I go to Melbourne, it's nice to go down there. 
you can actually pretty much buy a unit, true story, for what people bought in 09, 010 right now. Zero capital growth. Yeah. And this is, I'm talking major capital city. So this is the pitfalls that you can fall under. And what you find with brand new off the plan, you have no opportunity to stand out from the 5,000 almost other units that are exactly the same cookie cutter. You can't add value to it. You can't renovate the kitchen because that will be overcapitalizing. There's nothing to make you stand out. If you're in level three or level five, big deal. You have a marginal increase in value, nothing yeah. more. And I think that what you're touching on there, definitely some of the things that we'll address a little bit later on, it's although it might be nice and flashy, are you thinking about the future? And as a first home buyer, you go into a property and if it's a very emotional purchase, you may not be thinking what's going to happen in the next three years. What am I doing with it in five years time? You may have that thought and some may, but a lot of people don't. And what you're touching on there is what's your bigger plan? Have you thought about it? I mean, as a strategist, obviously that's what you do day in, day out. You've got the valuation side of it covered as well. So you can see it from that point of view as well, closely, I guess, intertwined, but you can see how that goes. And we'll definitely touch on that a bit later. What are some of the other pitfalls to be mindful of when buying brand new or off the plan other than just say the valuation side of things? Massive one. And cool, you're from Sydney. I'm just going to say one word. I don't want to use the name. There was a certain high rise unit block that had major defects in a suburb of Homebush. Yes. And we all know that. And yes. it's a gemstone name. Yes. And I'm not going to name it because no. for whatever. What we found, Michael, is when I was doing valuations and there was huge problems with a number of units, similar problem in mascot, defects. So a big pitfall is, is your defect on your property. And this is when you buy or into a contract, the developer has a duty of care to provide you with a quality apartment. You now buy this apartment and you as an owner are supposed to be covered by their insurance for a seven-year period for defects. The builder employs engineers, developers, all sorts of people in the background to give them architects, to give them the advice to build the building. And then he employs his construction company. What's happened, and this is where they're trying to work out the regulation and the, the legal around this, is the engineer was employed by the builder. So therefore, his duty of care, follow me, is to the builder. The engineer's duty of care is not to the purchaser because that means he's bunny hopping over mm -hmm. the builder and then to you. So your duty of care stops with who you're employed by. And sometimes they're arguing in court that their duty of care doesn't extend to the buyer because then it was the builder's duty of care to then make sure that the building was done in compliance. And sorry if this sounds really complicated, but the builder turned around and said, well, I did my due diligence. I didn't obviously build it with my bare hands. I employed the best. The best gave me the wrong advice. There are now major defects in the building. I put my hands up and say, it's not my fault. But then the engineer goes, I'm not liable for the loss of market value or wow. to the defects on that building. They keep passing the buck. And what does that mean for the and buyer? And all in all, you're stuck with a dud property with an absolute lemon you can't get out of because who's going to want to buy, especially when it hits the media? This so-called apartment in Homebush, I would not buy that if you, my life depended on it. I don't care how much discount I got. And I've personally been in that building. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's high rise. You get lovely views. It's got a beautiful design. Nothing wrong with it aesthetically, but from a building point of view, you're stuck. The banks won't lend on it. You can't sell it. It's yeah. problematic. Levies go up. You're stuck with special levies, legal fees, and you may recoup some of that in a court. You may, when you go to court, you may recoup some of this, but in the meantime, you're stuck with all these extra special levies, 
a dud property you can't sell and the builder passing the buck between him and the engineer and the architect and the builder and the designer and it's a mess. And I guess that's the pitfall that come across when buying off the plan and that would probably speak to the fact that when you're buying it, it doesn't exist effectively. And then once it's built, then you've got all these variables that come into play and is it what it was when you first spoke about it, thought about it? Is this here? Is that there? And then the whole complexities around once you do buy it and it is built, well, then what happens if something goes wrong? And it seems to be that there's a bit of a toing and froing as to who's Correct. liable for what at what moment. And that, I guess, implicates you. And yes, there might be legal recourse, but do you want the headache and the time and the stress that you've got to go through? And even if you do win, all the stress and time that it's taken you is probably like not going to seem like much of a win as well. So yeah, yeah I guess that's a pretty big pitfall to be mindful of when you're buying brand new and off the plan. It's scary because it's such a vulnerable group of people that are buying. And they're just not experienced to handle this. Once you're stuck with this property, it's really hard to get rid of. Another thing to be mindful of is, as I said earlier, if you are thinking of buying short term, because I think statistically, Michael, it's something like on average, people move homes three times or four times before they settle for their like inverted commas forever home. And it happens within a space of every eight years. On average, some people obviously a lot longer, a lot shorter, but if we're talking, let's just take that statistic and you've got a first homeowner thinking, I just want to enter the market or buy a unit. And then I'm going to sell that to buy another property or moving so on and so forth. When it's time to put your property on the market and you're in an area where there's very similar properties, you run the risk of you up against another 10 very, very similar properties. So what makes yours stand out compared to them? versus buying an established unit in an area that you can say it's renovated or you've renovated and you put your own personal touch on it. And then you're competing against various other units, but all different shapes and sizes and ages and conditions. So yours can easily stand out if you've done a great job renovating it versus your five-year-old or 10-year-old unit that's up against all other five and 10-year-old units, plus up against all the other new ones that now have that flashy, I'm brand new, come and buy me instead, get the government grant. So it starts to become a supply and demand. And you've probably read your fair share valuations. We actually flag this as a risk rating to the bank. And if you spend the time to read, there's a nice big fat clause on the back that says, there's a premium paid for a brand new product. We cannot guarantee that this premium will be paid once it hits the market as a secondhand property in resale. That's something that I have seen from time to time where it's the second purchase that can get affected to the person Correct. who buys after. And so that's something that makes it harder to sell, which in turn may make that second purchase for yourself a little bit harder as well. Do you see any positives to buying off the plan other than the government grant? I don't see any positives other than just great tax benefits and slightly higher on average rents, but I do like small boutique brand new off the plan and I like them for downsizes. I like them when they're done really, really well and mainly for maybe a more affluent person in terms of not for first home buyers, I would recommend a hundred other properties better than new off the plan, but brand new is great for those that may be living in a house or, and I don't want to name boomers as a problem, but there's a lot of empty nesters, we'll use that word that are living in these great big family homes that they've had the 70s and 80s with only nan and pop and the occasional grandkid that sleeps over and there's a five-bedroom house Hmm. when there's families in the open market that would love to buy that. You can free up that property by downsizing and I think a new and off the plan, it's low maintenance, you've got a lift, you can go up and you don't have to mow the lawn anymore. 
you can start enjoying your life, maybe have some money left over. So that aspect, I like it, but yes. but not for first time. That's wise, a very yes. small. Yeah. Thanks for listening to part one of our two-part series. Join us next time for the conclusion. You've been listening to The Home Run, your guide for buying your first home in Australia. This podcast was produced by Lens Street. Lens Street is a mortgage broker and home loan specialist that helps first home buyers find the right loan to meet their needs. We know applying for a loan can be overwhelming and complex, so we help guide and support first home buyers through the process from start to finish. To find out more, head to our website, lenstreet.com.au. We've also put a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Home Run, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Michael Nasser, and we'll be back next episode covering another step on the journey to owning your first home.